We are now part of the Razzball Sports Network. To get your fantasy baseball and baseball fix, head over to the Razzball.com website or give them a follow on Twitter at Razzball, where you can also listen to our podcast as well. Welcome to the Exit Velocity Baseball Podcast. My name is Brent. As always, I'm here with Jordan. How are we doing this evening? All things are good as I can be. How are you? Good. Tonight we got Vince, the play-by-play voice of the Oakland A's on. How are we doing, sir? Well, like you guys, we're all just kind of hunkered down and trying to stay safe and keeping social distance and hoping that at some point uh, we can get back to the thing that we enjoy the most, which is watching uh, the, the players, the very highest level, play the greatest game on the planet. Yeah, I know a lot of us been missing it. We've had people on the show with other teams like the Red Sox and whatnot. We all miss it and are struggling with this stay-at-home order. And I know some states will open up eventually, and they got plans as well for maybe playing in Arizona. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think they end up putting something together? It's a good question. I mean, I, I understand that uh, you know baseball is doing their due diligence to try to explore every possibility. And, you know, those possibilities become public and people start to go through those point by point and see what's good and what's bad about all the points. There's really no ideal circumstance given the circumstances that we're in. So uh, in in terms of quarantining players for weeks, months on end, and basically, I mean, for me, like I live in Arizona, but I would guess I would be quarantined with the team. I'd have to go to the team hotel, whatever that might be. And ride with the team to the ballpark. We all ride back together. We'd have food delivered to our rooms, or we'd all be in a you know in the same central location inside the hotel, uh, eating food together to try to uh, minimize the amount of physical contact or human contact we have, we have with other people. And I've got a wife, and uh, you know I've got a daughter that lives at home, and I've got two two other older ones as well. So multiply that by 750, which would likely probably blow to 900 or a thousand players because they're going to expand the rosters uh, and have them all stay away from their families nonstop for weeks, months on end, I think is a pretty significant challenge. And, you know, people want the game. There's no doubt. People want to see the game, even if it means without fans. But at what cost, I think, is what people are trying to figure out. And I'm afraid to say we're still some time away from making that decision. And I live in a state where. You know, back in the Northeast, it's you know, there's no question you you feel it on a on a moment by moment basis with what's happened in New Jersey, and New York, and and in Massachusetts, and then starting to move western toward Detroit, and then even Chicago down south and Atlanta. While we certainly have had some disappointment and some despair and some awful circumstances in Arizona, it's not nearly as bad as as it has been in other state in other states, but. You know, the reality is there. I mean, people of all ages, of all races, of all circumstances are succumbing to this uh, unknown virus. And so we can get a better handle on the the way to attack this moving forward. I'm afraid we're all kind of waiting and seeing and, and trusting that there are an enormous amount of smart people that are out there that are doing their very best at breakneck speed, unlike any other time in our lifetimes. To try to to try to get to a vaccine or get to some antiviral medications or things that could help slow this this down and, and get people back to doing uh, what they do, whether it's you know what I do working in baseball, what we all do with podcasts, or you know working uh, at a hair salon or working at a golf course or working whatever the case might be, we all want to get back to doing you know what what gets us up every day and going to work. Yeah, I would agree with that one hundred percent. I know your team, the Oakland A's, before we get to them, I was just going to ask how you got started in the broadcasting and radio industry. Well, I mean, for me, it started when I was a, was a teenager. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn and raised in Florida. But with that, I was still raised with a uh, kind of a northern slant. So I was a Knicks fan and still am a Knicks fan and a Jets fan. 
And, you know, Yankees fan, you know, growing up as a kid, Thurman Munson was my favorite player. I was a catcher. I wore number 15 as a kid, played through American Legion ball. And my only very minute claim to fame is that when I played against Tim Raines in American Legion ball, he was kind enough to slide when he stole the base on me, which, you know, he could do standing up if he wanted to. He was you know, head and shoulders above everybody else, you know, at that time in his life as a teenager. We grew up in the in the same area and went to, you know, we were part of the same conference at different high schools at the time. So, mm-hmm. um, but when, when we went back to New York for, when I was 14 or 15, we went back to New York for a funeral for one of my grandparents. Uh, we were at, you know, one of my aunts and uncles apartments and we were watching the Knicks on television and my cousins would turn down the TV sound and turn on the radio sound and listen to Marv Albert doing play by play of the Knicks on mm-hmm. radio. And I just thought that was the greatest thing, you know, since sliced bread. And I, I wanted to be a part of it. And baseball was always my favorite sport. My dad coached it before I started playing and long after I stopped playing. He coached for decades in Florida. It was my favorite sport. It was the one I thought I could potentially make a living at. So that's when I, you know, in high school, you know, I played one year of football, didn't even play high school baseball. I uh, did PA for the football games, was a sports editor of the newspaper and went to the University of Central Florida, which at the time when I started, it was still called Florida Technological University. That's how old I am. My first semester back in 1978. Changed to UCF, and uh, I was actually there and broadcasting for the college radio station for the very first season, which was 1979. So seeing how that program and how, how that school has grown, one of the top five schools in attendance in the, in the country with over 60,000 students, and watching that program grow to uh, to where it is now as a you know as a a division one team to be reckoned with, uh, mm-hmm. that's how it started. I mean, I worked at the college radio station. I was fortunate to be around a bunch of guys that that love sports, a bunch of ladies, you know, women that love news, the guys that love music, guys that love the engineering. We just had a we just had a collection of people that you know that knowing that you couldn't hear our our college radio station across the campus we still took it seriously we, we did everything we could to hone our craft and worked on it did college football to college basketball to college baseball and uh, worked for the university in the athletic department and then in 1984 uh, an opportunity was there to do uh, minor league baseball with the lynchburg mets which was the a ball affiliate of the new york mets uh, that year and uh, that is, you know, spent seven years in the minor leagues. I'd done two years of minor league baseball in college with the Orlando Twins and Tom Kelly. You know, I know you guys are Twins guys. Tom Kelly was the yeah. manager, eighty-one and eighty-two. Had Gary Gaetti and Frank Viola and Tim Laudner and Mark Funderburk, Tim Tuffle, a bunch of you know fans na- names that fan Twins fans would certainly recognize. So I worked my way through the minor leagues and got to the big leagues in ninety-one. And knock on wood. If we can get 2020 started, it'll be my 20th year in the big leagues. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah, and even talking with, I know this is a little off topic with that UCF program. I actually, me and Jordan were down, we lived in Windermere on the west side of Orlando from 2013 to 2015. And I was back down there from 2016 to 2018. I went through that claim national championship, the undefeated team. That city was pretty wild during that time. You know, for, for a guy that, that's an alum, you know, my two, I'm the youngest of four boys, and my two oldest brothers went to Florida State, and they started going there in the 70s, even before Bobby Bowden was there. But I would go to those games, I would experience the, you know, the quote-unquote college football experience. And, you know, going back to UCF when it first started in 79, it really, you know, wasn't anything close to that. And to see how much it's grown, and I, I went back to the school for uh, – for a baseball season opener two years ago because they were honoring the former baseball coach there, Jay Bergman, who actually was instrumental in me getting my first minor league full-time job. So I thought it was important to fly from Phoenix to, to be there, you know, for that ceremony. And I literally drove on campus and had a stop at the campus police station to say, uh, excuse me, you know, when I was here 30 years ago, I knew where the baseball stadium was. That was three stadiums ago. You know, where, where is the baseball field now? And they had to direct me through the woods and, you know, down this other side path of that enormous campus and, you know, got a chance to enjoy that experience. But, you know, like, like any other alum that's proud of their, of their school, wherever it might be, Minnesota or Boston College or Ohio State or Oklahoma or Alabama 
or Florida State, or in my case, UCF. It's it's uh, it's it's a proud moment to watch them when I, on Saturdays if I can watch the majority of their games on television and follow the team very closely and, and know that I was a, a part of of the infancy of of where that athletic program athletic program was and where it's what it's grown to become. Yeah, Scott Frost, who's now with the Cornhuskers, started that. Mackenzie Milton, I hope he bounces back, gets healthy. But yeah, I mean that's impressive what they built. But now going on to your team that you see every day, the Oakland A's. What can we expect from them if they play in 2020 or if not 2021? Is this a 100-win team? Well, I don't know about the number, but certainly back-to-back 97-win team win seasons with a club that you know was still growing and still getting better. If you're an A's fan, it's an exciting time to be a part of you know to be a part of following that team. They've got the two best corner players. For me in baseball, with Matt Olson at first and Matt Chapman at third. I mean, I know there are comparisons, and Nolan Arenado and, and Matt were high school teammates back in El Toro, California. Uh, Matt Olson is a terrific player that is really kind of still, for me, kind of you know under the radar a little bit, even though he's had some monster home run seasons and he's won back to back gold gloves. Because we play on the West Coast, because we play late at night, and because we're the A's. We don't get a lot of national attention, and the team really has not advanced, you know, far in the playoffs in quite some time. A lot of people aren't really aware of of what the A's have right now on their roster. To me, I am of the, I am in the camp, and I truly believe this that a manager does make a difference and can make a difference between five and ten wins a season. And the A's have that advantage with Bob Melvin. They've had him since 2011. You know, playoffs at 12, 13, 14, 17. Or 18 and 19, I should say, 18 and 19, you know, bodes well to what everybody knows with the A's are, are challenges with the payroll, challenges with revenues, and challenges with trying to keep a team together and how they're able to do that with Billy Bean and David Forrest and in concert with, with Bob and his staff. I mean, to me, this was going to be an exciting year. There's, there was so much confidence in camp, guys, really, knowing that they, what they've accomplished and knew that they were really a good team. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they had and they had uh, Jesus Lazardo stepping in. He was going to get a full opportunity in the rotation. A.J. Puck was going to get the same opportunity. Frankie Motas, you were hoping, was going to give you a full six months. Uh, Sean Manaya was fully healthy. And Mike Fires is just a, you know, a, a, a smart veteran in that rotation. Uh, combined that with, you know, Ramon Laureano at center, MVP candidate with, with the Marcus Seaman at short. Uh, Mark Canna playing maybe above a little bit with his positions in right field and left field and what they've been able to do. The young catcher with Sean Murphy, who's a, you know, has an opportunity to be a, a star for years to come. It was, it was an extraordinarily confident time for the A's in spring training as they were getting ready to start the season. Now that said, they were going to start, you know, that first month, they were going to play the twins, you know, back to back in a span of, you know, less than two weeks, they were going to play the Astros. They were going to play the Angels, and they were going to play an improved Rangers team, and that, and they were going to play the Yankees and the Red Sox. So they really had a challenge in April, and if you know the A's, and I know you guys do, their M.O. is always a slow start and a fast finish. And that was something they were – not that any other team doesn't think about this, but they felt, you know, we really want to emphasize this at the beginning of spring training. Guys, we've got to get off to a fast start. It would really, it would really behoove us moving forward given our history – and that was something that was kind of drilled into them by Bob, Bob and the staff. I uh, didn't get a chance to see how that was going to play out, but uh, you know, it was important to see that happen. But this was a young, confident, tremendous defensive team, good starting pitching, just a, a fun team to watch and be a part of. And I was anxious to see uh, opening day against the Twins, and, and unfortunately we'll see if you know what opportunities they have to have whatever kind of season they'll have in 2020. Yeah. Jordan, what are your thoughts on this A's team? Honestly, as to like what we've seen in recent years and going into this year, uh, from top to bottom offensively, rock solid, especially from what we saw last year from Marcus Simeon. Um, what was he like, finished top four in the, for AL MVP votes? Um, honestly, like it was exciting. Mark Canna um, getting everyday ABs. I thought that'd be some exciting excitement there. But then even Sean Murphy, being the rookie everyday everyday catcher, a lot of upside there. And then when you looked at the rotation, 
with Lazardo and Puck, as mentioned, I just think that um, there's a lot of strength and a lot of strengths that we haven't seen in recent years. Yeah, and I know, too, with you saying Matt Chapman and Matt Olson are probably the best corner infield players in the league. I totally agree with that. A, fu- a fun stat right here. Since 2000, beginning of 2018, for a run saved in the MLB, Matt Chapman has 64. Second is Nolan Arenado at 25. Just that, I mean, saving three times as many runs as, well, people say that one of the best players in the league in Arenado. That's, I mean, that's impressive. And with Marcus Simeon and Ramon Laureano, do you think, Vince, that their 2019 breakouts are legit? Do you think Simeon keeps us up? Well, I mean, it's a fair question for for any player. The, the way I look at, you know, looking back at what happened in 19, let's go specifically with a guy like Matt Chapman, back-to-back Platinum Glove awards at his position. And what impresses me about Matt and what separates him from others, you know, Arenado included, you know, Alex Bregman and others, is the way he has defined the position by by the way that he sets up. He's very deep. He's well behind the bag. He's in a very low, aggressive stance, and he has tremendous foot speed and arm strength. So when when guys like D. Gordon would attempt to to lay down bunts, now he wouldn't play all the way back for D, but he would certainly he would be further back than most would against the, one of the most adept bunters in all of baseball. And he has, on multiple occasions, taken excellent bunts away from Gordon that ninety nine percent of the time would be hits that he gets to. Gloves or bare hands and throws on the run with something on it. And I, I go back to a moment last year in interleague play for Matt where, you know, where the A's were playing the Cardinals in St. Louis, which is one of the greatest baseball cities on the planet. Uh, fans that are very knowledgeable and very appreciative of good play. And Matt Carpenter was leading off the game for the Cardinals and the A's were in a shift. Three infielders on the right side and, and Matt Chapman along on the left side playing at shortstop maybe, you know, certainly on the dirt, maybe two or three strides back on the dirt. And Carpenter laid down a bunt. Matt recognized the early charge, gloved through, and got him out by a full stride. And the Cardinal fans were appreciative of that, uh, of seeing that play, given that they, you know, they remember the, the Aussie days and, you know, all those things that, that go along with it. And mm-hmm. it just it just speaks to, if there's one reason that Italy play is still around, for me anyway, it's for situations like that because Cardinal fans are not going to see Matt Chapman and they're not going to see Matt Chapman do the things that they watch on highlights in person unless he comes to their ballpark. And the fact that that they got that opportunity and he put on that kind of show speaks volumes for the kind of player that Chapman is. Now, with Marcus, Marcus, to me, and you know, I've, again, been in the big leagues for for a while and I've talked to a lot of people in the game, people that have seen a lot more know a lot more than I do. But Marcus Simeon's story from 35 errors four years ago to an MVP candidate in 2019 is unparalleled. Just the thing about Marcus, the way he went about uh, his work on a daily basis, once the A's brought back Ron Washington to work with his defense, he literally, A, didn't know how to play the position, B, didn't even have the right glove to play the position. And Wash helped correct those things. And to Marcus's credit, every day, because I witnessed it, on his knees, doing the very the very simplest of drills that has made you know Wash one of the greatest infield instructors to ever, you know, walk on a field. And you know, Marcus, he he understood that. He understood what needed to be done. And he just he just stayed with the program, stayed with the plan. And gradually got better and better defensively to where before, and I would talk about this with scouts, when you when you would see a Carlos Correa or Francisco Lindor, the way they play the position, it's natural. It, it, just, it just comes to them. With yep. Marcus, especially early, it was very robotic. It was step one to step two to step three to try to make the play. And in 2019... He took such a, an enormous stride forward to where it, it became almost second nature for him. That You didn't see the, the robotic moves that you saw in the past. You saw the confidence. You saw the, the way that he attacked the baseball, the way that he was going to get himself in position to make plays. And then the other side of it, especially in the analytic world that we all live in now, 
watching him offensively, he's always had extremely strong hands, very fast hands, very quick wrists. That's the kind of offensive player he's been. Primarily a pull hitter coming up from the White Sox and then to the A's. Watching his game grow where the walks increased and the strikeouts decreased and the way that he used the entire field opened up. He, he would hit balls to right center down the right field line with enough consistency where he couldn't necessarily be shifted as regularly as some other power right-hand batters would be concerned. So his growth is, to me, has just been remarkable to watch. And the other thing about this, the guy that was committing 35 errors four years ago and the guy that was, you know, I think, less than 10 this year and a you know, MVP finalist is the exact same person. His, his mindset, his, the way that he approaches the day, the way that he talks with you, he's the exact same person. He hasn't changed one bit, and I think that is, speaks so highly of, of, of Marcus really believing in himself, betting on himself, and now going into what would be a free agent year getting a chance to, uh, to uh, reap the rewards of an extraordinary amount of hard work on his, on his part. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan, do you think uh, Simeon can keep this up for in 2020? Honestly, like if we were, we were talking about fantasy baseball, I have a couple of shares um, in various leagues, but interesting to get your take and a little insight because mm-hmm. contract year two, especially in the immense improvements that he's made, I would definitely buy this year and be about it. I think that, um, with what he showed us last year and that profound confidence that he has established, I think he's got a really strong chance at replicating his efforts again in 2020 or 2021 whenever we get baseball back. Yeah, and I think one thing I know in our world that I'm sure people in Oakland appreciate how good defensively this team is or can be, but in our world, I don't know if they realize it. Like Ramon Laureano in center field, Matt Chapman and Matt Olson on both corners. And also even a Steven Piscotti, who's, I'd say, I mean, he's above average defender. But, I mean, like a guy like Chris Davis as well, who's pretty much a pure DH. Last year, me and Jordan actually were in PNC Park when he ran into the wall and injured his hip. And since that day, he never was the same for the rest of the season. Do you think he can make a little bit of a comeback this year and get back to that 247 average and maybe 35-plus home runs? I mean, it's a fair question. Even though the A's rolled to 97 wins last year, and you know for the most part, KD was not the kind of contributor he was in previous years, you would talk to Chapman, and you would talk to Olsen, you would talk to, to Mark, and whoever you talked to inside that clubhouse, they knew that Chris Davis still drives the train. And maybe that was a part of trying to build him up and keep him in a positive frame of mind as he was fighting through injuries and, and making changes in a swing and maybe making adjustments because of he wasn't feeling 100%. You know, in spring training, it wasn't going that well this year for him. You you can make what you want of spring training. I will say this about KD. The one thing he told me this spring is, look, I I spent a lot of time at home in Southern California with my dad, Rodney, longtime major league scout. He goes, my dad knows my swing better than anybody. And so they they work more this offseason than they had in, in previous years. And maybe that was a, you know, a step in the right direction. You know, before the injury, Chris had 10 home runs in April. I mean, he was on track to, to do even more damage than he had done in the previous three or four years. So he's a, such a streaky hitter. He's the kind of guy that once once he kind of gets it going a little bit, it has a chance to take off for a period of time where he can carry the team. And he, and he doesn't need to carry the team anymore, which I think is, in, was in, is important because while he has struggled, Matt Olson has grown as a player. Marcus has grown as a player. Chapman has grown as a player. Laureano has grown. Canna has grown. Sean Murphy's learning his way. So, I mean, there are, there are enough players that are on that roster that are in the lineup that can do their fair amount of you know, contributing to the, uh, to the bottom line to where you're not looking over your shoulder and waiting to when, when to see that Chris is going to come up again in the lineup. Although I will tell you, for you know, three-plus years, you didn't go get popcorn when Chris Davis came to the plate. Because mm. you were you were waiting and expecting something spectacular to happen, but it, it's a fair question. It's an important cog to the A's uh, psyche, I think. If Chris has something remotely close to what we had seen in the past, as opposed to the struggles he had in nineteen. Yeah, we got our own person that type in Minnesota, probably one of the best power hitters of all time, Nelson Cruz. 
he's pretty much hold your breath every time he's at is up to bat and you don't know where that ball is going to fly. The first home run I seen him hit in target field was dead shot center over the center field bar. And I was like, Oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. And I'm sure Chris Davis has that same type of power. Oh, they both do. And Nelly's one of the all time good guys. I mean, I know we went through a tough time a few years ago, but always fun to talk to. And he said balls up in the suites at the Coliseum, which is above uh, the bleachers in dead center. I just asked Sean Manai about that. So, one of the great things about Nelly, uh, the A's were playing the Twins last year on July 4th, and I asked him to do a, a pregame show with me on that day specifically about becoming an American citizen. And it really was a, it was a, it was a moving time. I've, I mean, I've known Nelly for a long time since his Ranger days. Uh, I like him a lot. We, we, we do have an opportunity when the teams get together to, you know, just to talk a little bit, you know, just see how things are going on the field. And he's one of the guys that I, I really enjoy and really root for. And he's certainly a significant cog to, to the Twins' success. Oh, yeah. Uh, one position that I think is a little bit of a question mark on the A's, besides the rotation, the later parts of the rotation, is your second base. I know you're a right-handed heavy, heavy lineup with Murphy, Piscotti, and Hannah and all them. But at second base, I know they have Tony Kemp slotted in there, hitting in the ninth spot. Do you think uh, Sheldon Noisy comes up and maybe competes for that as well? Uh, at this point, I I don't. Uh, I think it's I think it's Kemp from the left side, and then given that they're you know whenever if baseball starts again in twenty twenty, there will be even more expanded rosters than the twenty six that were originally allotted. You know if everything had gone according to plan, so I think both. Jorge Mateo and Franklin Barreto would make the club as the right-handed platoon and maybe a, a guy that could play a variety of roles for the club. Mm-hmm. For me, Sheldon Noisy, he's the kind of guy you have to watch every day to appreciate. He's there. There's nothing that to me that really stands out. He's got a, he certainly has a strong enough arm. He catches the ball. Doesn't have an extraordinary amount of range. You know what little I saw last year, and it's unfair to to place a label on somebody based on you know, six to eight weeks in the big leagues, but especially for the first time. He was primarily an opposite field hitter for the A's and not a guy that really drove the ball. Uh, certainly has a feel for the game, good to talk to, understands it, came out of a great program at Oklahoma, all those things. Uh, but in terms of a guy, I, I, I think there are opportunities for Barreto and Mateo with their skill set, again, unproven, but a skill set that, that screams wow more than Sheldon Noisy, whether that's right or wrong or something that works against Sheldon who simply just shows up and plays, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But mm-hmm. I think right now you see Barreto and you see Mateo, and there's there are, at least to this point, there are possibilities of things that they can accomplish. And Franklin has done it in very small, very small spurts in the big leagues with the A's, especially against the White Sox. Mateo we haven't seen yet. Although when he runs, there's hardly anybody that runs faster than him, but he's got to get on base. And yeah. watching him play defensively, I've seen him, you know, play some shortstop and play some second base. And, you know, the other side of it is, I mean, the guy, a player, whether it's Matei or anybody else, has to have that drive, has to show that outwardly and has to, uh, you know, go about their business of of trying to uh, trying to get better on a daily basis. And with, with Chapman – and with Simeon, and with Olsen, you're surrounded by those guys. If you're not willing to put in that extra work around those guys that do it all the time, then I think that that's something that is frowned upon. I'm not saying that's happened yet with Mateo or anybody else, but I think you've got to look at those guys. I think that was an issue with Jerickson Profar, as uh, you know, as talented a player as he was with the Rangers, and then he came to the A's last year. There just was some, there was just something that wasn't there with Jerickson. Whether it was just the shoulder injuries and finally kind of took its toll on him or just the way he went about his business. But it just seemed like if you're on a team with players that are out there getting their early work in, you shouldn't be you shouldn't have to be asked to get out there. You should be out there before them to participate in those workouts and try to get better and be a part of that. And I think that was something. Uh, that was missing a little bit from Jerkson's game as talented as he is and as, as much of a skill set as in there. Just I just didn't see it really kind of rise to the top with him. 
Yeah, Jordan, what do you think the A's end up doing with that second base position? Honestly, I think a guy like I thought Mateo was actually a conversation piece prior to the start of the season. Um, and I really didn't know much of any insight that you would have. But uh, was there a speculation that he would actually be up with the team to start the season? There's a possibility. I mean, again, the, the issue at, at the end of spring training had everything been normal was he's out of options. Barreto's out of options. You've got an extra man on, on the roster. You know that Tony Kemp has made the club as the left-handed platoon at second base and maybe even a little bit of a utility role. What do you do with those two guys? And I, and I think my guess would have been that there was a very good chance that both of them would have made the club out of spring training in part because of their abilities and in part because the A's wanted to use that time where teams are going through a roster crunch to keep them for at least a a longer period of time and continue their evaluation than before that and make a a later move. And now if baseball starts 2020, I think we all are in agreement that the rosters are going to be much larger than 26 and opens the door pretty significantly that both those guys would, would be on the club if healthy. We shall see what happens. Uh, moving on to the rotation, which to me with the A's is pretty interesting as well. One thing that I feel like nobody talks about, to me, the Oakland A's are the West Coast team of the Tampa Bay Rays are the East Coast team. They're both kind of the same money ball type approach. Uh, the A, the Rays had that big trade. They got rid of Archer and got Meadows and Glass now and Shane Baz, and people thought that was one of the craziest trades of all time. But the A's recently, I mean, the past couple of years made a trade. I feel like that's end up being pretty similar. And that's that Sean Doodle, Ryan Matson, for Blake Trin- Trinan, uh, Jesus Lazardo, and Sheldon Noisy. And you guys ended up getting Trinan's best years. And Ryan Matson didn't even pitch in 2019. And Sean Doodle has been on the downcline. And Jesus Lazardo might be the best starting pitching prospect in baseball. Would you consider that you guys are kind of like the Rays in some ways, playing that money ball approach and getting these really good trades? Well, I mean, Billy Bean is is um, he's a master at what he does, and and that particular trade you're talking about between Mike Rizzo and Billy Bean really worked for both teams because the Nationals, you know, had been winning divisions in the NL East. They were looking to get beyond that. They needed some veterans in their bullpen, and so they were, you know, they want to do a little. They want to match, and the A's are willing to take a gamble on mm-hmm. basically a 19 year old who had Tommy John surgery in high school, who on paper could could potentially pan out. And as it turns out, I mean, Jesus has been on quite the fast track, and he, he's got a chance to be a bona fide front-of-the-rotation kind of starter. I mean, he made his debut in the bullpen last year against the Astros in Houston and did a terrific job. And in that playing game against the, the Rays, while the A's were down to that game, he gave Oakland three shutout innings in that game. So uh, he, he, he has a chance, if he can stay healthy, to be a real a special talent. But you know, the interesting thing about the way Billy goes about deals, you know, you could say it's it's somewhat one-sided. And I don't think Billy goes into deals with the idea of trying to beat the other team. I think mm-hmm. he tries to be fair. I think he has a he has a definite idea of what he needs with his club between him, David Forrest, and their staff and what they're looking for. And the analytics that they use to put a team together. And it certainly has, you know, has worked for, you know, years on decades. I mean, since since 2000, the A's have been in the postseason, what, 10 times, I think it is. So it, it, while they haven't advanced far enough to where they would garner more attention, uh, you know, this is a team that's done a lot of churning of their roster year in and year out. It's something that Billy's probably better at than anybody else. The hope was, with the potential of a new stadium, is that uh, there was a chance that you could start talking about keeping Simeon and keeping Chapman and keeping Olsen you know, long-term and building this kind of core that could – that can maybe make a run. And we just don't know that yet. I mean, everything with the stadium, like the rest of the world is up in the air right now. But Billy has always, you know, the great thing, if you're an A's fan, if you're, if the A's are in contention in July, you are confident that Billy will make some kind of move to improve the team. He'll, he'll find that one piece or pieces. He'll go after that one piece or pieces to make the team better. And, and he is also understanding like with the Dodgers, with Josh Reddick and making those deals back in 2016, is that when the team is not good enough, you got to cut your losses and try to rebuild. You got them Frankie Montas and got them Grant Holmes, who may get to the big leagues at some point. 
and other players as well. So I think if you're an A's fan, given the circumstances of, you know, we don't have the same kind of resources that a, a Yankees or a Red Sox or a Dodgers or a Cubs might have, uh, Billy's always found a way to do the best he can and, and find players like a Ramon Laureano, who was taken off the Astros 40-man roster, suffered a broken hand in his last year with the Astros, and he, you know, he's on the verge of becoming a an all-star, maybe a superstar at some point down the road because the A's recognized something in his game that they knew they could take advantage of at the time. So, yeah, those deals you talk about uh, with Madsen and Doolittle, it was on both sides for the right reason. The A's were out of it, and they wanted to get younger and get some inventory, and they targeted somebody specific in Lazardo, even though they knew it was going to be a gamble because, again, 19, turned down Miami out of high school with the Tommy John would he pan out? And I mean, so far, so good. There's a chance that that's going to happen. Yeah. And I know too, that us as twins fans can appreciate good coaching as well with even a guy like Liam Hendricks, who's probably was one of the best relievers last season. He actually started with the twins in his, in 2011, a guy like that. How do you go? How do you switch him from becoming 64 innings at a four ERA to being one of the most elite closers? Is it the, is it your, pitching coach or how you just work do they do just a great job with working with pitchers or how is that i think that's part of it i think liam will tell you and he has upon occasion you know any team could have had liam when he was dfa two years ago in the middle of summer when he was below average for the a's in middle relief and sent back to the minor leagues and wasn't performing that well and to his credit kind of took a look at the mirror and said, I, you know, I've got to make changes. I've got to be better. Lost weight, improved his diet, improved his physical regimen, went back to something that was important to him in the throwing program with a, a long toss throwing program, which for whatever reason helped him get a couple of ticks of velocity. And I think with that came some confidence, which probably added a couple of more ticks. And now, you know, you know, Liam is a guy that uh, he, the A's wouldn't wouldn't have got to the postseason without him last year for sure. I mean, he he saved the club in June when Blake Trinan was really struggling. The year before, Blake was basically unhittable, and had a season that was one that you would have to go a long way back to dig to find the things that he accomplished. You know, at the back end of a bullpen. But both you guys know that bullpens are very, very suspect and uh, and unpredictable from one year to the next. The A's were dealing with that last year. Lutrevino was a rookie sensation in 2018. He threw three shutout innings in the playing game against the Yankees at Yankee Stadium with the bases loaded. He got out of a jam. Then last year struggled with mechanics and performance and just wasn't the same guy. And the same with my, with uh, with Blake. I mean, the A's had a turn somewhere, and they turned to Liam, and Liam was up to the challenge and very aggressive with a, with a fastball that he could – spot on both sides of the plate and, a, you know, to wipe out slider and a newfound confidence that, uh, you know, he felt he could get the job done. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, he was a middling end of, you know, back of the rotation starter for the twins. And he was basically a kind of a middle of the bullpen reliever for, for the blue Jays, except for a little spike there where things got better. And the ace took advantage of that when they acquired him. But even then he had a, you know, he took a step back. And the A's were willing to let him go, basically, for a cheese sandwich. And nobody took him. So, you know, he he took the opportunity to kind of retool his his performance mentally, physically. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, not only is he a terrific performer on the field, he's been a Roberto Clemente nominee for the A's. He's won the Dave Stewart Community Award with the A's. He's been, he and his wife, Christy, have been heavily involved in the Oakland community and doing a variety of things from bullying to kids going hungry and in, in, in school situations and taking care of, uh, you know, animal safety. Uh, they've gone above and beyond. And it's it's a terrific story that he that he's grown to where he is as a player and as a person. That's good to hear. Jordan, I know you like A.J. Puck a lot. What do you think this rotation and bullpen can do in 2020 or who stands out? Honestly, from top to bottom, one through five, with the rotation as strong as it is this year, it'd be interesting to see as long as everyone stays healthy. Um, but being a limited season, that's probably going to be into effect. Um, I think AJ Puck will turn some heads, much like Jesus Lazardo, even though there is far more belief that Lazardo will rise and be a top end starter. 
Um, where do you actually see AJ Puck settling in in that rotation long term? It's a great question, Jordan. I mean, I think you know if the season would have started on time, AJ would not have been in the rotation because he had a shoulder injury in spring training and he was slow to work his way back, build strength back up after they shut him down. And the possibility existed at that time that maybe he would have made the club in the bullpen. And certainly could be a weapon, you know, a two-inning weapon for the club in that regard. The question is, is that something they would have seen him doing long-term already? Was that something they were going to use as a fallback plan down the road based on his, whatever his performance might have been in the rotation? We don't know the answer to that. I think he has an opportunity, like many other teams do, Justin Verlander with the injuries and the surgery he's had, Jordan Alvarez with the knee injury that he's had, and countless other players at this time away from the game has allowed them to get healthy. And for the A's, that applies to A.J. Uh, you know, A.J. is great stuff. You know, he's got uh, – he's a, you watch him and he's, you know, 6'7 with the whippy arms and, the, you know, the coming across fire and the long hair and all those things that, uh, that are intimidating. And he has spent some time, you know, through Bob Melvin with uh, Randy Johnson – and, you know, Randy spent some time in the ACE camp this year talking with them mostly on the mental side and, you know, spent some time with Dave Stewart, who, who comes to camp with the A's. And, well, Dave is not the kind of pitcher that A.J. is, but he, he had that, you know, that fortitude that is hard to find. And it, it just doesn't fall off the tree. It's something you've got you've to have. And I think he's trying to help A.J. unlock some of that uh, veracity in uh, what he could do on the mound. Uh, he, to me, he's been inconsistent. And that's a challenge in terms of being able to con, you know, to throw strikes on a regular basis in the rotation. I still want to see it happen. I want to give him a full, a full opportunity to do that because, again, this is, this is a guy that when you are facing a team and they know that in that series they're going to face Lazardo Montas, and puck, it's not going to be fun. Uh, you got high velocity, left, right, left. Uh, you know, one guy with great pitchability, uh, great knowledge on the mound. Lazardo, great stuff with Montas, the quick pitch and the split, and puck with that, you know, that three-quarter sidearm motion, whipping the ball up there at 98 miles an hour, you know, with a slider as well. Those are uncomfortable at bats. That's an uncomfortable series for an opposing team, and that's something the A's were hoping to. You know, still at some point we'll get an opportunity to take advantage of that. So for me, I don't know where AJ plays long term. I still think he long term may end up in the bullpen, but in the meantime, I want to see him perform in the rotation, see what he can do, and maybe he does grab hold of that and becomes you know if he can grab hold of that, then he's a he's a two or three for sure behind a guy like Lazardo and Montas, and and then you're off to the races. Then you've got you've got something in place that has a chance to really be special. Yeah, we shall see what happens with AJ. Good stuff. I was going to say the last thing, last question I have for you tonight, Vince, would be what are some of your best memories or favorite calls you've had over the years? Well, I mean, there's, there, I've been lucky. I've been, I mean, been around enough and seen a lot of great games and seen some no hitters and been a part of some no hitters and playoffs, et cetera. You know, your first game in the big leagues is always going to be special. And that was opening day 1991 with the, uh, Astros and the Reds when I was with Houston in Cincinnati back when they still had uh, the opening day parade downtown. That was still the first game that kicked off the major league season. Uh, that was a special time. Mike Scott was pitching, you know, that day for the, uh, for the Astros against Tom Browning. And I was in the minor leagues before that I was in AAA Tucson, which was the Astros affiliate. And I was fortunate that I was given an opportunity to join the big league club. And they said in part, because you know, the young players, well, you know, opening day featured Jeff Bagwell, who was never with us. You know, Jeff was acquired during the winter from the Red Sox. I never saw Craig Biggio play at AAA Tucson. He, he jumped ahead before I got there. He spent only a half season at AAA. Luis Gonzalez jumped from AA at the big leagues. But they thought, you know, it made sense. So I was I was fortunate to be along for that ride. But in terms of in terms of actual calls, man, I called Rafael Palmero's 500th career home run with Texas. And that was at the ballpark in Arlington. It was it was against the Indians. It was a 10-day homestand, and everybody knew the number was there, and his family kept on coming out every night in every game. 
And I think it was the last that bat of the last game of that homestand that he was able to do it in front of the home fans and able to get that accomplished. You know, with with Oakland with 15 years, you know, being there longer than the than the Astros and the Rangers combined, and it, it, it offered an opportunity. And then my first year, 2006, uh, Mark Hatze is inside the park home run in the Metrodome in a game one of the uh, game two of the postseason uh, against uh, against the Twins. Uh, Marco Scudero, game three in that same playoffs back in the in the Coliseum where he cleared the bases against Brad Radke with a double, which kind of put it away and sent the A's to the ALCS for the first time since 1992. You know, the 2012 season with Bob Melvin at the helm was really special because the A's didn't didn't win the division until the very last day. They weren't in first place until the very last day. So that Saturday before the um, season ended, and that's, that season ended on a Wednesday, so that Saturday, one of my, my best friend in the Bay Area was getting married that night. My wife was in town, and, we, and she was already at, the, already at the wedding, and I'm still doing a game in extra innings. And that was a year that the A's had 14 walk-offs. And Brandon Moss, who was a, you know, among the many, Billy Bean finds over the years a terrific story, hits a walk-off home run in a game, I think it was against Seattle, and I said Oakland is the walk-off capital of baseball. That was a... That was a great moment to be a part of. And then, of course, that last day, uh, game 162 uh, against the Rangers when, when Josh Hamilton dropped a routine fly ball in center field in the fourth inning. The A's were losing that game. You know, they fought and fought and fought. They were already in the playoffs as the wild card, but they still wanted to win the American League West. There's a routine ball that Hamilton dropped it, and I was a part of that call as well. And those are the ones that um, – you know, that, that stick out the most, but you know, anytime when you go to the ballpark and you get to do what I do and you sit behind the microphone and you're watching whatever the size of the crowd is, you're watching the crowd come in, settle in, you know, bat, batting practice is over, the music is on and getting ready for the game that, that anticipation and that excitement still, you know, brings, you know, a tingling through your body of uh, wondering what will happen you know, that particular game, because there's, you know, as, as you guys know, you go to enough games, you're going to you're going to see something that you've never, ever seen before. And to be a part of things like that makes the game so great. Yeah, it really does. I know, too, with opening day, it's the one day of the year. I mean, that's pretty much my holiday, my favorite holiday opening day. And you go in with the optimism that your team, I mean, could you, everyone's O and O. Everyone starts no wins, no losses. And you all think you can win the World Series. And it's fun just to have that mindset for that first week of what the potential could be with each team. But Jordan, do you have anything else for Vince this evening? Honestly, that was one of my biggest questions that I had for you. I guess the other question that I would have in, in relation to the team uh, right now, if you were to compare Ramon Lariano to a team or a player in recent history, uh, who would that be when healthy? I mean, that's that's that, that's a good question, Jordan. I don't, you know, Ramon is a guy that was unheralded. You know, he's a 16th round pick. He's from uh, the Dominican. Went to high school on Long Island. Learned English in high school. Went to a small junior college. Uh, you know, kind of. He's he's a guy that has a chip on his shoulder because he's always had a you know he had a bet on himself because not a lot of people were were giving him giving him credit and the thing that there there are things I really like about Ramon I mean two stories that come to mind specifically last year so he was struggling at the beginning of the year this is something I didn't know until it happened so the A's play the Reds in Italy play in May and the Reds come to town and Joey Votto of course on the field I had not known until that moment that Joey Votto was Ramon's favorite player and Ramon would would literally go back and look at tape of of Joey's at bats of a game, or he would watch Reds games specifically just to watch Joey's at bats. Even though Joey's a, you know, he's an on-base power-hitting left-handed first baseman, and Ramon is a shorter, compact right-hand-hitting center fielder. And I watched Joey and Ramon have a conversation around the batting cage early, I mean, before batting practice even started, and Ramon just. You know, wanting to get information, and Joey was so forthcoming and willing to provide his his take or his insight on 
on what makes him go to a to a fellow peer. And at that point, Ramon was batting 220, 230. And in the span of a month or so, his, his numbers jumped to 280. And he stayed pretty consistent with that the rest of the year. Later in the year, the A's are playing the Angels, and of course, in the same division, so they see them a lot. Did the same thing with Albert Pujols. He made sure he showed up early one day, uh, found Albert, and just began to pick his brain. I mean, this is a young player always wanting to get better. You know, in terms of trying to compare him to somebody, it's hard to say. I mean, I'd, he's not, you know, in terms of playing the position, he's not Andrew Jones, who won 10 gold gloves in center field, but he's he's on track to be a pretty special defender out there. We, You know, he made the play over the year two years ago against the Angels, that great double play in left center field where he caught the ball and doubled off Eric Young at first base. In fact, I mean, that was another call that I was fortunate to be a part of. And he's made several diving and leaping catches at the wall from time and time again. Um, in terms of a player that's, you know, that's out there or, or you know, it's been out there in the past, I, I just don't know because I'm still waiting to see who Ramon Laureano is going to be. Is he going to be a, a 3,100 guy with, you know, the defensive capabilities that he has? And then suddenly he's in some pretty rarefied air at that position. And he's just... The, the thing you admire when you're when you're watching players on a daily basis, you get the opportunity, which is difficult sometimes for fans, to see the amount of work these guys put in to try to get better and be better every day at the, at the very highest level of the sport. And Ramon is certainly in that category. Good stuff. Yeah, that is that's impressive. I know Joey Votto. I believe he still hasn't ever popped out to a catcher in his major <laughs> league career. Yeah. <laughs> which I mean that's incredible and I appreciate it because I, I live in Dayton Ohio so I'm right down the road from Cincinnati so I've seen Joey Votto quite a bit the past two years and he's a, definitely one of the funner guys to watch in the league with the personality that he has interacting with the fans and the city loves him I mean they're behind him as much as any city is behind a player in the league but uh, thank you so much Vince for hopping on this evening talking Oakland A's baseball we'll definitely have to have you on the show again maybe after the season if they play one. Well, I appreciate the visit, Brent, Jordan. Good to talk with you guys. All the best. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll be uh, getting together at, at ballparks around the country and get a chance to, join, to enjoy the great game safely and healthy and, and, the, and the country moving forward. Yeah, I'm sure we'll all be listening to a bunch of your calls too because a lot of East Coast, the 1030 games are some of the highlights of the night with the Oakland A's and the Rockies. I call the Rockies quite a bit, but we'll definitely be – listening to those A's. Certainly appreciate it. We'll try, we'll do our best to try to keep you awake. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Have a great night, Vince. Thank you. Thank you, Vince. Thanks guys.